Volume two, chapter ten of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume two, chapter ten. Si tu ne m'aimes pas, moi je t'aime. It was the time of afternoon tea. Miss Fane rolled off the sofa, and with a hydraulic sniff that contemporarily suspended the laws of nature, proceeded to pour out tea. Presently John and the dogs came in, and Di, who had found Mrs. Courtney's book without his assistance, followed. John had not the art of small talk. Miss Fane, who was in the habit of attempting the simultaneous absorption of liquid and farinaceous nutriment with a perseverance not marked by success, was necessarily silent, save when a caraway seed took the wrong turn. She seldom spoke in the presence of food, any more than others do in church. Few things, apart from the bull of Basham, commanded Miss Fane's undivided homage, but food never failed to, though it was reserved for plover's eggs and the row of the sturgeon to stir the late demotion of her nature to its depths. The dogs did their tricks. Linda contrived to swallow all his own and half Fritz's portion, but, fortunately for the cause of justice, during a muffin-scattering choke on Linda's part, Fritz's long red tongue was able to glean together fragments of what he imagined he had lost sight of for ever. Di inquired whether there were evening service. "'Evening service at seven, said Miss Fane. "'Supper at a quarter-past eight. "'Do not go to church again,' said John. "'Come for a walk with me.' Di readily agreed. It was very pleasant to her to be with John. She had begun to feel that he and she were near akin. He was her only first cousin. The nearness of their relationship, accounting as it did in her mind for a growing intimacy, prevented any suspicion of that intimacy having sprung from another source. They walked together, through the forest, in the still opal light of the waning day. Through the enlacing fingers of the trees the western sun made ladders of light. Breast-high among the bracken they went, disturbing the deer, across the heather, under the whisper of the pines, down to the steel-white reeded pools below. They sat down on the trunk of a fallen tree, and a faint air came across the water from the trees on the further side, with a message to the trees on this. Neither talked much. The lurking sadness in the air just touched and soothed the lurking sadness in Di's mind. She did not notice John's silence, for he was often silent. She wound a blade of grass round her finger, and then unwound it again. John watched her do it. He had noticed before, as a peculiarity of Di's, not observable in other women, that whatever she did was interesting. She asked some question about the lower pool gleaming before them through the trunks of the trees, and he answered absently the reverse of what was true. "'Then perhaps we'd better be turning back,' she said. He rose, and they went back another way, climbing slowly up and up by a little winding track through steepest forest places. Many burrs left their native stems to accompany them on the way. They had showed to great advantage on Di's primrose cotton gown. At last they reached the top of the rocky ridge, and she sat down, out of breath, under a group of silver firs, and, taking off her gloves, began idly to pick the burrs one by one off the folds of her gown. There was no hurry. 
he sat down by her and watched her hands. She put the burrs on a stone near her. They were sitting on the topmost verge of the crag, and the forest fell away in a shimmer of green beneath their feet to the pools below, and then climbed the other side of the valley and melted into the purple of the Overley and Ulston moors. Far away, the steep ridge of Hambleton and the headland of Sutton Brow stood out against the evening sky. Some tempest of bygone days had dared to perpetrate a Greek temple in a clearing among the silver firs where they were sitting, but time had effaced that desecration of one of God's high places by transforming it to a lichened ruin of scattered stones. It was on one of these scattered stones that Di was raising a little cairn of burrs. Forty-one, she said at last. You've not even begun your toilet yet, John. No answer. The sun was going down unseen behind a bar of cloud. A purple light was on the hills. Their faces showed that they saw the glory, but the twilight deepened over all the nearer land. Slowly the sun passed below the leaden bar, and looked back once more in full heaven, and drowned the world in light. Then with dying strength he smote the leaden bar to one long line of quivering gold, and sank dimly, redly, to the enshrouding west. All colour died. The hills were gone, the land lay dark. But far across the sky, from north to south, the line of light remained. Di had watched the sunset alone. John had not seen it. His eyes were fixed on her calm face with the western glow upon it. She did not even notice that he was looking at her. One of her ungloved hands lay on her knee, so near to him, yet so immeasurably far away. Could he stretch across the gulf to touch it? His expressionless face took some meaning at last. He leaned a little towards her, and laid his hand on hers. She started violently, and dropped her sunset thought like a surprised child its flowers. Even a less vain man than John might have been cut to the quick by the sudden horrified bewilderment of her face, and of the dazzled light-blinded eyes which turned to peer at him with such unseeing distress. "'Oh, John,' she said, "'not you!' and she put her other hand quickly for one second on his. "'Yes,' he said. "'That is just it.' Her mouth quivered painfully. "'I thought,' she said, "'we were—surely we are friends.' "'No,' said John, mastering the insane emotion which had leapt within him at the touch of her hand. "'We never were, and we never shall be. I will have nothing to do with any friendship of yours. I am not a beggar to be shaken off with coppers. I want everything or nothing. Her manner changed. Her self-possession came back. I am sorry. It must be nothing, she said gently, and she tried quietly but firmly to withdraw her hand. His grasp on it tightened ever so little, but in an unmistakable manner, and she instantly gave up the attempt. A splendid colour mounted slowly to her face. She drew herself up. Her lightning-bright, intrepid eyes met his without flinching. They looked hard at each other in the waning light. Once again they seemed to measure swords, as at the moment when they first met. Each felt the other formidable. There was no slightest shred of disguise between them. There was a breathless silence. Di went through a frightful revulsion of mind, 
The sunset and the light along the sky seemed to have betrayed her. These pleasanter days had been in league against her, and now, goaded by the grasp of his hand on hers, her mind made one headlong rush at the goal towards which these accomplices had been luring her. Where were they leading her? Glamour dropped dead. Marriage remained. To become this man's wife, to merge her life in his, to give up everything into the hand that still held hers, the pressure of which was like a claim. He had only laid his hand upon her hand, but it seemed to her that he had laid it upon her soul. Her whole being rose up against him in sudden, passionate antagonism, horrible to bear. And all the time she knew instinctively that he was stronger than she. John saw and understood that mental struggle almost with compassion, yet with an exultant sense of power over her. One conviction of the soul ever remains unshaken, that whom we understand is ours to have and to hold. He deliberately released her hand. She did not make the slightest movement at regaining possession of it. John wrestled with his voice and forced it back, harsh and unfamiliar, to do his bidding. "'Die,' he said. "'I believe in truth, even between men and women. "'I know what you are feeling about me at this moment. "'Well, that, even that, is better than a mistake. "'And you were making one. "'You had not the faintest suspicion of what has been the one object of my life "'since the day I first met you. "'The fault was mine, not yours. "'You could not see what was not on the surface to be seen. "'You would have gone on for the remainder of your natural life, "'liking me in a way I—I I cannot tolerate if I had not—' done as I did. I have not the power, like some men, of showing their feelings. I can't say the little things and do the little things that come to others by instinct. My instinct is to keep things to myself. I always have, till now." Silence again. A silence which seemed to grow in a moment to such colossal dimensions that it was hardly credible a voice would have power to break it. The twilight had advanced suddenly upon them. The young pheasants crept and called among the bracken. The night-birds passed swift and silent as sudden thoughts. Di struggled with an unreasoning, furious anger, which, like a fiery horse, took her whole strength to control. "'I love you,' said John, "'and I shall go on loving you, and it is better you should know it.' And as he spoke she became aware that her anger was but a little thing beside his. "'What is the good of telling me?' she said. "'What I—what you know I don't wish to hear.' "'What good?' said John, fiercely, his face working. "'Great God, do you imagine I have put myself through the torture of making myself intolerable to you for no purpose? Do you think that you can dismiss me with a few angry words? What, what good? The greatest good in the world which I would turn heaven and earth to win, which, please God, I will win.' Di became as white as he. He was too strong, this man, with his set face and clenched, trembling hand. She was horribly frightened, but she kept a brave front. She turned towards him and would have spoken, but her lips only moved. "'You need not speak,' he said more gently. "'You cannot refuse what you have not been asked for. I ask nothing of you. Do you understand? Nothing.' When I ask it, will be time enough to refuse. It's getting late. Let us go home. End of Volume 2 
Chapter 10